This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. This is Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. Wherever you're listening from, welcome. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. For as long as I've been paying attention, some 20 years or so, I've heard Christians complain that we need more attention on the body. That is, uh, theological attention on the body. I've heard that Catholics have much deeper, more comprehensive theology of the body. I've seen Protestant evangelicals try to make the case for attention to the body. But for some reason or another, the arguments often just don't land with readers. I don't really know how to explain the disconnect. We worship the God who became flesh in the incarnation of Jesus. When Paul talks about the body, he's referencing all of life. I mean, that's how far our views have diverged from his. We live in a time that esteems self-expression, mind over matter, not self-sacrifice of the type that engages the body. But Sam Mulberry aims to help us in his new book, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, How the Gospel is Good News for Our Physical Selves, a book published by Crossway. Alberry is a world-traveled speaker and apologist and serves on the leadership team at Emmanuel Nashville. And in this book, he encourages Christians to look forward, but not to a time when we'll have a full head of hair and flat stomachs. I would look forward to that. But instead, when we anticipate resurrected bodies that glorify and serve Jesus perfectly. And what good news that is for our broken bodies. Sam writes this, The problems we experience with our body were never ultimately going to be solved by our body. We may be able to ameliorate some aspects of our bodily brokenness. We can cure some ills and ease some pains, but we cannot fix what has been broken. The only hope for us is the body of Jesus, broken fully and finally for us. And by looking to his broken body, we find true hope for our own. Sam joins me on Gospel Bound to discuss intimacy, technology, avatar, colorblindness, masculinity and femininity, and much more. Sam, thank you for joining me. Good to be with you. Thanks, Colin. Sam, how is the body a gift? Because I've got to be honest, I don't often feel that way. (laughs) Yeah, and you're not alone um, feeling that way either. Um, It's a gift because it's, it's the means by which God has given us to exist on this earth, it's the, the means by which he's given us to have life. So in the, the biblical way of thinking, it's not that we are primarily spirits and we happen to have a body. Um, and God created Adam. He didn't make a spirit called Adam and then look for something to put Adam into. Um, he he animated matter from the ground and breathed life into it. So without our bodies, we, we don't have life. We don't have the capacity to exist and to know one another and to know God. So 
much as that has been spoiled by the fall and much as our experience of the body is therefore mixed, um, it is nevertheless a gift to have bodily life and to have flesh and blood. Do you think, Sam, that the Christians tend to think of the body as intrinsically bad? And I'm, I'm wondering, if so, why would that be the case? I think we, we often do. Um, and there are some reasons for that, some biblical-ish reasons and some cultural reasons. Um, biblically, Paul often uses, for example, flesh as kind of shorthand for our, our fallen nature. Um, and so it's easy to extrapolate from that shorthand that the, the body itself is just intrinsically bad and intrinsically wicked. And obviously our, our flesh is, is fallen. Um, it's been subjected to frustration along with the rest of, of creation. But the fact is that the Bible speaks elsewhere very positively about our bodies. David could say of his fallen body, it was fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, Paul elsewhere uses much more positive language. He talks about our, our bodies being offered to God as a sacrifice that's pleasing to him. So our bodies aren't all bad in that point of view. But I think because we are, and I'm immediately out of my depth using a computer analogy, but because we have, <laughs> we're, we're running new creation software on old creation hardware. We we do have a new a new heart, a new mind, a new spirit, but we are still living in the flesh of this age. And so the body is so often a vehicle for sin. It's so often one of the ways in which many people have been sinned against. And so there are many scars spiritually, emotionally, as, as well as physically that we carry in our bodies, some of them self-inflicted, many of them inflicted by others. So there's there's shame and there's pain and there's all kinds of remorse and regret that go along with our bodies. And obviously culture then adds, kind of piles on by, by really suggesting that the real you is the inner you and that the body is, is purely an accident of evolution and utterly incidental to your real understanding of who you are. Well, that's what I was going to turn to next here, Sam. Uh, you, you argue in this book that our generation is most at risk of forgetting that embodiment means we need to relate physically. So hmm. would you explain just some of those factors that you've come across that make that especially difficult for the people who are listening to this uh, disembodied podcast right now? <laughs> yeah, and, and a lot of it is to do with technology. I think it's technology plus the sort of anthropology that we've, we seem to have drifted into uh, in this particular time have really combined to sort of make the body sometimes an encumbrance, sometimes just an irrelevance. And technologically, we can, you and I can have this conversation across so many thousand miles and time zones and, and all the rest of it. Um, we, we don't need our bodies in the way that we used to, to be able to relate to one another. We can Skype, Zoom, call, and and have ways of being in touch with each other that are are virtual. But at the same time, that that isn't enough. And um, joyous though it is to see your face on my computer screen, it would be even more joyous to be sitting across the table from you. And I think sharing barbecue in Birmingham, Alabama, as we've done before, even better. See, I couldn't I couldn't enjoy that <laughs> if I didn't have a body. 
Um, <laughs> if I enjoy too much of it, I might not have a body for much longer, I suppose. But, um, <laughs> That's true. Test case right here. <laughs> so I, and I think, you know, we've we've come out of COVID, I hope, learning something about the the value of physical presence, um, of our virtual stuff, our social media stuff, gives us an illusion of of being relational, but it's not actually as relational as we think it is and as much as we need it to be. So much as I can be messaging friends all over the country or in different parts of the world, much as I can be, you know, doing my thing with social media, much as I can be live streaming church, those things are all good in their way, but they are woefully insufficient for what we are designed for. We're designed for physical embodied friendship, community, relationship, and church. So the technology gives us the, the convenience. Uh, COVID kind of forced us into that kind of way of relating. And we, we need coming out of that to, to rediscover the, the, the importance of physical presence. The way you put it in the book is that technology has triumphed over geography. Um, I mean, you've mentioned a number of ways that we can celebrate that, but maybe try to explain to some people. I I find that American Protestants, at least, a lot of whom are going to be the, the folks listening to this, assume that technological developments are are always good, that they only add. What What is technology as it's added some things? What has it taken away when it comes to our sense of ourselves through our our bodies and and our physical presence yeah it, it has added incalculable amounts so i'm i'm very grateful for that but it it has made it easy for us to be relationally lazy in the way that actually we most need to be relationally rich um so you know i'm i'm in the uk now i'm slightly stuck here for visa reasons my my church is in nashville I'm so thankful that I can hop on the live stream every week and watch the service. Um, that's that's way more than nothing, but it's nowhere near enough. It's nowhere near what I would get if I was physically there. And the trouble is, you know, if, if I was living in Nashville, I'd wake up on Sunday morning and there'd always be a part of me going, can I be bothered this week? You know, I'm, I'm in bed, I'm comfy. It's raining outside yeah. or whatever it might be. Um, and it, it's then easy to think, oh, I'll, ju- I'll just watch the live stream instead. And we, we sort of think we're still getting most of what we would have got out of being there physically. But the one thing we can't get is physical relationship and serving others. And so much of our relational depth in the way God has designed it to be comes from serving others, self-giving, being physically present for others. And we can't do that adequately with with this technology. I'm going to take this idea from you, Sam. I want you to tell the listeners here about the spiritual gift of showing up. Yeah, this was a like dear it. pastor friend of mine I was placed with when I was at seminary and did a summer placement at this guy's church. And the church was an Anglican church in a city in Southeast Asia where the, the entire church was a microcosm of all the tensions going on in the whole Anglican world. And it was a very difficult season for him as a pastor, a lot of opposition from parts of of his own congregation. But he referenced just one particular kind of church member, and he said, 
that guy is, you know, whatever whatever we put on at the church, he will always be there. And he said, this guy, and because that this pastor was facing so much discouragement and so much opposition, this guy kind of always being there, front row, whatever it was, the pastor said he's got the spiritual gift of of just being there, of showing up. And that guy's his mere presence, even before he's opened his mouth or tried to do anything encouraging, just the fact that he's there was was already ministering to that pastor friend. And we could multiply that principle. All of us can think of times when we've been in church and we've just seen in our peripheral vision some precious saints, and we just seeing them there puts a smile on our face because we think, oh, man, I know what they're going through in their life. The fact that they are here blesses me, even before I've had a chance to say hello to them or you know, even they've not even noticed I've seen them, but they've already served me. So there's so much we we get intangibly by showing up that cannot be mediated in any other way in the same way. We can apply this to so many different things in life, Sam. I think about grief specifically. What would be a great great motto when it comes to grief? Just show up. Yeah. What would be a great motto when it comes to should I go to that funeral? Just show up. Yeah. I mean, on and on and on to to a small group or Bible study, a regular worship service, all kinds of different things. I mean, who who as a friend doesn't doesn't like the the pop in? I mean, yes, there can be some introverts out there who don't like that idea, but just the idea that somebody's thinking about you yeah. and willing to make that effort to just show up and makes it, so much it, difference. It challenges our idea that we think in such kind of utilitarian terms. We're, we're activists in the Christian world, and we sort of think, well, I need to be doing something to be useful. And we forget our mere presence itself is is often doing something. Um, I know right. when I've been in times of, of deep distress and anxiety, just having a friend sitting in the room with me, um, they don't have to be saying anything. They don't have to be opening the Bible and teaching me from it. Their, their mere presence conveys so, so much. Oh, absolutely. Um, one thing that, Sam, we've, we've come to see from your writings for the Gospel Coalition, your previous books, is this, this, this idea of how do we recover the good of intimacy apart from reducing that entire concept to sex? How does that relate here in your book on the body? Yeah, again, it's another example of how the, the the Bible gives us far broader categories of of relational intimacy than our culture does. We've really reduced it to romantic and sexual gratification and fulfilment. But again, the Bible shows us just a richness and a multifacetedness to to how we can experience intimacy, and physical presence is a key part of that. Um, there there are certain friends. Um, that I will probably see two or three times a week in the in the course of normal life. And we don't have to be kind of doing anything particularly milestone-y when we're getting together. It doesn't have to be some big occasion or some grand sort of thing, but just actually being together right. is, is nourishing. Um, when I was first moving to Nashville, um, I was getting to know TJ Timms, the, who's now my pastor. And we were grabbing coffee one Saturday morning and he said, oh, I've, I've got a scoot. And I said, what do you got on? And he says, well, I'm actually going to go and get my haircut. And I was like, oh, I really need to get a haircut. Where do you go? Where's a good place? And he said, well, <laughs> hop in the car and come with me. So we went and grabbed a haircut together. 
And then it just kind of became a thing for a, a several months that we would go and get our hair cut together. And it's a really dumb thing. <laughs> um, but it's on, I, I found that so much, so much life of real life happens in the dumb stuff. Um, not in the kind of the grand, you know, singular events, but often it's just the dumb stuff of life. Doing that physically with somebody else makes a difference. Running errands, you know, and I have friends who who meet up and do chores together just to kind of share that mm-hmm. time physically. Um, Fold I, your laundry together. Yeah, I know people who do that. Um, occasionally, if it, again, yeah. when I'm when I'm stuck outside the the country of the church I'm I'm belonging to, <laughs> there's a couple of guys. If if I've got to be sat at my desk all afternoon working and they're doing the same thing, we'll just open up FaceTime and we'll be doing our work, but we'll occasionally just sort of chat while we're doing it. And some of that kind of mm. that's a virtual presence thing rather than the physical presence thing, but just the right. company thing can make a huge difference. And if that works through a screen, how much more? when they're sat around the table with me. This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and Ray Ortland's new book, The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility. Pornography may seem inescapable, but God can free us from its destructive power. In this book, Ortland writes six personal letters, as from a father to his son, giving hope to men who have been misled by porn into devaluing themselves and others. The Death of Porn inspires men to come together in new ways to fight the injustice of porn and build a world of nobility for every man and woman for the sake of future generations. Pick up a copy wherever books are sold or visit crossway.org slash plus to find out how you can get 30% off plus a free copy of the ebook. Let's talk about our culture's view of the body and some of the difficulties that we have to sort through. And we can look at some popular media to be able to see that. So you suggest the movie Avatar as describing our culture's philosophy of the body. I think we could probably come up with some other examples as well, though. I think we have how many more Avatar movies to come? I think two or three I mean, they've been like saying. A, I'm, I, kind <laughs> of keep, I keep hanging on to Avatar thinking at some point it's going to come back to being cutting edge. It's it's 10 years old now, the original one, but, um, it, it is, but, but again, I thought James Cameron was signed for like five more or something like that. But I mean, we can, I mean, I could come up with a number. The one I use almost always in addition to avatar would be ready player one. They're very different in some ways, but the same underlying philosophy. But I do think James Cameron's view is probably more positive of that philosophy, whereas Ernest Klein's view, I think, is more negative for yeah. that, at least in how I read or watch him. But yeah, use explain from Avatar, what does that tell us about how, generally speaking, Western culture, especially, though that's kind of transcultural in that, in that movie and in its appeal, how does that give a contemporary philosophy of the body? Well, the main character whose name I couldn't possibly remember... Um, you know, the whole premise of the movie. Sully, is- I think, and I don't know how possibly I remembered that. What was I it? Think it's Sully. Sully. Sully, wasn't he the guy who landed a plane on the Hudson? <laughs> also Sully. Okay. I'm going to look it up. Well, <laughs> well you a great talk. crossover with, with it, anyway. <laughs> sure, with Tom Hanks. All right, keep going. Um, so the main character inhabits the body of Tom Hanks. No, that's the other one. Um so no, the, I mean the whole premise of Avatar is that a bunch of the main characters, there's this alien moon, they they go and live there, but they they kind of 
transfer themselves into the physical forms of these alien creatures and spend time with them and, and kind of, I guess, incarnate among them in some kind of Hollywoody type sense. And the, the sort of observation, and I think I, I first noticed this, Matt, Matt Lee Anderson drew my attention to it in a book he'd written. Um, but the, the kind of unspoken assumption is you, you can do that. You can transfer your body, not just even into a different human body, but into a different creature's body and not lose any sense of who you are. Um, your your physical body, as we experience it now, in in that regard, is is transferable. It it has no intrinsic meaning. It doesn't contribute. It is simply the container. Um, and we see that ideology reflected when um, Ellen Page transitioned to Elliot Page, if I've remembered those names rightly, right. and did the. Yes. The secular equivalent of of baptism, which is a Oprah Winfrey interview, right. um, you know that the comment was coming out of the shower post transition, looking in the mirror and going, "There you are," um, in a way, presumably that hadn't been felt previously. Um, the body previously hadn't felt like it was who they were, whereas now that that kind of that feels like that's me, and the fact that we can even articulate that shows how separate from our sense of ourselves our bodies have become i don't think yeah jake sully is the name okay um but i i didn't uh i didn't i didn't realize i, I don't think i connected before what you're saying there of avatar to I mean, you, you talk about how that movie is 10 years old. How much has changed when it comes to transgender identities yeah. in the last 10 years? And now um, but you can see the, those bodies being treated as a kind of, you know, the just the housing of, our, of that inner identity and thus needs to be shifted. That body needs to be shifted. That avatar needs to change or that host needs to change so that the that the true identity can be realized there. Um, we could talk a lot about transgender uh, issues there, but I think you also address racial ethnic issues here as well. Explain what you mean about what color blindness um, tells us, or how, do, how does that fit into what you're talking about here about the body? Yeah, that was actually in the, in the context of gender identity rather than race, and I mentioned color blindness. That's right. Yeah, colorblindness about sex and gender. That's right. Explain yeah. that. That's yeah. It's yeah, it's a, I'm sure a very imperfect analogy, but I was I was trying to talk about how um, obviously one of the things we see repeated in scripture is that God has made us male and female. Um, obviously, foundationally Genesis one, but then repeated at various points and throughout the rest of the Bible, and not least by Jesus Himself in in Matthew nineteen. And, you know, to many contemporary ears, just that phrase, God has made us male and female, would, would sound implausible and offensive and maybe harmful and all kinds of other things, right. because we, we don't have those fixed as, as a kind of pair of categories in our minds. And one of the reasons people will use today for abandoning those categories is the confusion and you know, diversity of experience different people have when it comes to their gender identity. And so the point I was trying to make is just because there's such a thing as colorblindness and some people get red and green muddled up doesn't mean there's no such thing as red and green in reality. And right. 
this 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 thought came to me as I was um, I was borrowing a friend's car actually, and the the, the brakes weren't working terribly well. So um, every time I came to a, a red light, it was slightly stressful, um, particularly if it suddenly switched red just as I was approaching. But it, again, it made me think. <laughs> If you if you start saying there's no such thing as red and green, that makes the roads a lot less safe. And I think correspondingly, if we if we start trying to completely abandon the categories of male and female as being biological realities, we're heading for even greater danger societally and, and culturally. Um, Jesus reaffirms we're male and female. He also affirms that some are born eunuchs. So there's not, you know, sometimes there is complexity and complication and pain in, in someone's experience of their biological sex, but we we don't infer from that complexity that there is no such thing as as male and female. Well, Sam, I left my most difficult question for last, and the one that I struggle with with the most. And it's really hard to sit down when you're writing this book or publishing an article about the differences between masculinity and, and femininity. Now, it doesn't sound that difficult in general, because I think we all sense, I know what that means, but then you try to do it and, oh, wow, you realize how many different things you have to qualify, to caveat. I found that writing in the internet about masculinity and femininity is so difficult because of people's divergent experiences, problems, struggles. It's basically impossible. Uh, I'm not saying people shouldn't. I'm just saying every time I've tried, it's gone poorly. People just don't respond well to that. So I'm going to ask the impossible question, which is how do you avoid the problem of saying less than the Bible does about masculinity and femininity, fem femininity, and also including the wisdom of history that's developed over thousands of years, without, on the other hand, saying too much about masculinity and femininity, especially by re overly relying on cultural stereotypes. Well, I think I mean that is a huge it is a huge issue. I think one of the things is even being aware of the possibility of straying in either of those directions helps us enormously because I think so much of our discourse on these things, we're just presuming we know what we're talking about and that there's so many unconscious assumptions being brought in, so many cultural things that are being brought into play as if they're biblical things. So even just having that awareness of I, I need to go as far as the Bible says and no less and no further, even knowing that that's our aspiration, I think makes a big difference. Um, and it just means we we need to be mindful of the the things that are given um, in creation that there is such a thing as male and female. The fact that those differences extend beyond biology, um, hence there are scriptures that are addressed specifically to men and scriptures specifically to women. Um, whilst also allowing for the fact that we see, I think a, a range of examples of what a, a godly man and a godly woman can look like in the Bible and trying not to baptize our own cultural kind of background or preferences in and sort of making that the essence of biblical masculinity. It, it's one of these things where it's easier to say what it's not than what it is. Um, I remember having a discussion. Right. That's part of the problem. Yeah. Um, that I'm running into. Yeah. And you know, I've discussed this with a with a pastor once who who said, you know, 
I said, he, he was talking about men are meant to be physically strong and athletic and have been mentioned sporting prowess. And I said, well, what if a guy is just not coordinated and can't throw a ball? And he says, he, he has to be made to. I said, what if he's disabled hmm. and can't play sport? And, you, you know, it, but, but he'd sort of attached ma- biblical masculinity to, in, in his case, he was talking about rugby. Um, and I sort of thought, well, that may be an application of, of a way of being masculine, but we mustn't reduce masculinity to that particular cultural stereotype. Um, so th- that's one of the areas where I think we end up saying more than the Bible does. I think the church is more prone to saying more than the Bible does, and the world is more prone to saying less than the Bible does. And it's one of those areas where it helps to be in dialogue with other Christians. It helps to be in dialogue with Christians from other cultural backgrounds, um, because we need to sort through how much of our own understanding has come from Scripture and how much has come from culture. Because in another part of the world, the very thing that you're decrying as being feminine might be something that is culturally an expression of masculinity. So we we want to recognize our own cultural situation, certainly not to send out signals that would confuse our culture about whether we are male or female, um, but be hesitant before coming up with a sort of, you know, this is what it means to be a biblical man and this is what it means to be a biblical woman. Not that we can't say those things, but that we just need to be really careful before we define those things kind of with authority. I'm going to ask something that might be controversial here, Sam, and I don't know how you're going to answer this one. Um, so <laughs> you like that preface? Um, I think it's it's really good to be able to say, okay, we we clearly have to say what the Bible says. We should learn from other Christians and other cultures. Would you also say that we should listen to Christians from history when it comes to this? Because often we can see the clear problems, the blind spots of Christians throughout history when it comes to these these stereotypes. That's a that's a huge that's a huge issue there. But is it possible that they are that we need that history to be able to correct some of our own cultural over situatedness? Oh when it comes to our reluctance yeah. there. Well without hesitation. Uh, absolutely. No, we we need um this this is why the, the two of the things that most help me with my own blind spots are firstly, you know, being around Christians from other parts of the world today. But the other thing is, is, you know, having conversations as it were with Christians from different times. And both of those things help us to kind of lose our cultural blinders. Um, And sometimes we'll learn through church history from negative examples and think, wow, they, they really got that badly wrong. And other times we'll be learning from from the wisdom of previous generations going, man, those guys thought really carefully in their time about, you know, what it meant to be a biblical man, what it meant to be a biblical woman. So I think that that historical view is going to be hugely helpful, um, that the, the Bible is your authority, but church history, as I heard somebody call it once, is, is often the sort of the expert witness. And so seeing mm. how the people of God have grappled with this in the past is going to be instructive, whether it's through learning from their mistakes or learning from their from their wisdom. 
Maybe Sam, the, the problem, I'm a verbal processor. <laughs> so maybe the problem was like, well. a lot by it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was a very properly British uh, comment right there. I appreciate that. Um, I, I think the issue is that when people appeal to history, they appeal to just one segment of history. They say, well, our era is wrong. Let's go back to this period of time. So it's not that's why I think where history gets a bad rap when it comes to gender, hmm. masculinity, and femininity, because you're trying to baptize, repristinate some particular time as opposed to the full witness yeah. of history. Um, I do think also at the same time the you know the the person who coined the term chronolog chronological snobbery with uh, with C.S. Lewis there he comes across so much as a kind of cosmopolitan worldly figure that that Christians of all different sophistication levels can cite. But then we see what he says about masculinity and femininity and sexuality, and he seems very regressive for our culture. Yeah. But I think that might be an example of somebody where that doesn't mean Lewis was right about everything, but it does mean he might have some things to say to us that we should listen to instead of just dismissing by our own standards. So anyway, thanks for helping me come to my some of my own conclusions about that one i just i just hadn't thought through that in that way but thanks for that that thoughtful um response um they got final three questions here for sam alberry we're talking about his book what god has to say about our bodies how the gospel is good news for our physical selves published by crossway sam first question final three how do you find calm in the storm um hiking does a lot to calm me down um being being in nature and having space not being near a screen and if you throw a friend into the mix to to talk things through with on said hike then that that helps too so that that's one way time with friends i find is is always kind of a healthy thing for me if i'm feeling stressed or or low um and again we don't have to be you know trying to fix it but just the, as going back to our earlier conversation just the, the presence of other people i find calming and it mediates something of what i know theologically to be true of god but it, it often feels more real when it's being expressed through the kindness of a friend sam do you have to hide that i mean like do you, like do you have to you know what i mean do you have to force yourself to see other people because I know a lot of people struggle with, they know they need to see other people physically, hmm. but they just can't often force themselves to do it. I, it could just be, could be shame, could be laziness. Is it something that comes naturally to you or do you have to remind yourself, do you have to like preach to yourself, I need to see people right now? No, it, actually it does come naturally. I, I always thought I was an introvert because I don't like big groups. I'm not the kind of loud, bouncy person. Um, but I've realized I'm, I might, maybe I'm an ambivert because I, I really love company um, and I love being with one friend or two friends rather than a, a whole gang of people. Um, but I've, I've, the Lord has given me some very dear friends who make it easy for me to say if I need some company, if I'm feeling low, it's, it's not a kind of, it doesn't feel like you're kind of crashing through some some barrier you're not supposed to go through in the friendship to say, Hey, yeah, things are, things are low today. And I've, you know, and it's lovely when that's reciprocated. And sometimes it's as simple okay. as, um, 
I've got to spend the afternoon doing stuff. I'm really quite low. Can I just bring it over to your house and do it in your living room? Sure, that's um, good. And, and be around you while I'm while I'm doing these things. It can be as, as little as that, but I've I've learned how to do that, and it helps when you have friends that that really do make it easy for you to do that. And on the flip side, it's worth thinking: are, are we making it easy for other people if they need to send out a little SOS? Right. Are we making it easy for people to do that with us? That's good. Sam, where do you find good news today? Well, we, I, I get to, I mean, I see a lot of good news just through the, the ministry I do, and by which I don't mean that the ministry I do is the good news, but I get to meet Christians <laughs> in different places and different churches in different parts of the world, and you, you just get to see glimpses of what the Lord is doing. Um, I was just in Spain this past weekend doing some ministry with a, a former colleague in, in Madrid and just finding out from him what, what's it like in the church these days? What are you guys facing? What are the opportunities? And you realize in, in the language of, of Colossians 1 that the gospel is bearing fruit across the whole world. Um, our, our news Amen. feeds are very different to the news feeds in heaven. Um because the Lord is is working powerful powerfully, um, so that helps just just um, those opportunities. Um, strangely, social media can help when you when you mute all the people you need to mute to then hear, to make sure you're then actually receiving and seeing encouraging voices. That can help too. And what a great place, you know that. Yeah. The, the phone can be it's normally the source of anxiety but if there can be some encouragement through that as well then that's that's really great as well and obviously chatting to people at church and that sort of thing this just came to mind sam be the kind of friend who when a text message pops up from you it's encouragement or yeah. it's a positive thing that happens and uh no, no shade necessarily on my my friends who like to tell me about all the bad things that are happening out there, because <laughs> there are often things that I need to know. So thank you for keeping me in the loop. But there is something that happens even physically when I see a text message pop up and I'm thinking, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Now, who has said what? <laughs> yeah. Who's done what? What's happened here? Um, you know, if, if that's... If that's something you struggle with, at least mix it up a little bit. <laughs> I got to say, Sam is one of those friends where where it's almost always encouragement. Uh, so not talking about you, Sam. <laughs> there. Well, I um, mean, it's it's one of those things, isn't it? You you sometimes see a certain name pop up on your notification, and yeah, you can suddenly get very tense and think, "Oh no, is this exactly be another." pummeling um and it's also worth it just for that very reason if if sometimes I and mean, there are times where we need to offer correction and such things to right. one another as brothers and sisters text messaging isn't the way to do that effectively and that's social media true. certainly isn't so when those things do need to happen again that's where our embodiedness becomes hugely significant so maybe save those conversations for the in-person opportunities and that way, when people are hear, hearing from you through text or whatever, they they know it's not going to be that. 
Yeah, if we use text messages for quick encouragement and we used social media for sharing helpful, illuminating, encouraging, sometimes challenging articles or longer or book recommendations or things like that, the world would be a much better place. Yeah. So we can try to do that ourselves. Last question, Sam. Uh, what's the last great book you've read? Well, I I knew you were going to ask that one because uh, I know that's a, a regular question. And so oh, I was, I was finally, about, finally, you listened. Okay. I do. I do. I love this podcast. Um, although I probably won't listen to this episode. Um, <laughs> I was um, <laughs> thinking through what I've been reading over the summer. And actually, I've got to say one of the highlights is was one of your previous guests, John Dixon's book, Bullies and Saints. I very good one. Picked it up off the shelf. I've always loved John Dixon's books anyway, but I remember thinking, oh, I'll take that on holiday. I don't know if it's going to be the kind of thing I'm going to want to read on holiday, but um, sorry, vacation. But I started it and just didn't really put it down for the whole rest of the trip. Um, really enjoyed it. Very, very well done. And even when he's giving us the the kind of discouraging parts of church history, he's doing it in a way that is instructive right. and edifying. And there's not another book I've seen that sort of does what that book is doing. Yeah. Um, he makes even the the, the mess-ups part of an apologetic for the goodness of Jesus. That's a great way to put it. So that, that would be one highlight of recent. I agree. I agree, absolutely. That's a great one, Sam. Well, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening in to what is it turned out to be a Gospel Coalition Podcast Network mashup here from uh, Sam Holmberry, <laughs> co-host of uh, the relatively new and very popular uh, TGC podcast, You're Not Crazy, with our good friend Ray Ortland. And check out Sam's book, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, How the Gospel is Good News for Our Physical Selves, new from Crossway. Sam, it's great to talk to you, my friend. Thanks, Colin. And I, I think Sully is also one of the characters in Monsters, Inc. as well. So there's a third one. <laughs> Well, we that. Americans have about three nicknames, and they all end in Y. We just sort of cycle through them. But, but now I want to do a kind of crossover movie with all those three different Sullys. <laughs> we'll come back and we'll do that podcast after you finish that project. Thanks, Sam. <laughs> Thanks, Colin. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gospel Bound. For more information, including past episodes, transcripts, and to sign up for my newsletter, go to tgc.org slash gospelbound. If you like what you've heard, you may also like my new book written with Sarah Zalstra called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. You can find it wherever books are sold.